For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, visit the Holocaust History Center in Tucson. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. I'll lead a roundtable discussion with representatives from the Southern Arizona Center Against Sexual Assault. And film writer Krista Scheel looks at The Thin Yellow Line, a new film from Mexico about a group of impoverished men hired to paint the dotted line on hundreds of miles of desert highway. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The first synagogue in Arizona was established in Tucson in 1910. This small building was the first home for the Temple Emmanuel and now houses the Jewish History Museum. After years of planning and development, the lot next door is now the site of the newly redesigned and expanded Holocaust History Center, an immersive exhibition that honors the victims and survivors of the Holocaust while exploring the social and political developments that surround one of the 20th century's greatest tragedies. I visited the Holocaust History Center one afternoon and met a group of Tucson religious and educational leaders, some of whom were touring the Jewish History Campus for the first time. I spoke with Samuel Kohan, the senior rabbi at Temple Emmanuel in Tucson. This is the beginning of Judaism in Arizona. So it has a tremendous resonance and should for all Jews, not just in southern Arizona, but throughout the state. And what it has now become with the development of the Jewish History Museum and now the Holocaust History Center is again a dynamic place for Judaism in the reviving downtown of Tucson. Inside the History Center, I met director Brian Davis for a tour and a discussion of the things that were most important to the center's designers. This has been conceptualized as an education center rather than a traditional museum. So in all of our design situations, we were also thinking about how the learning would happen in this space. Um, so we were always thinking about bringing groups of 20 to 30 students throughout a time and how they would move through the spaces and make meaning of this history. It's also a place of commemoration and remembrance. So for the family members of those who experienced World War II, we wanted to have an intimate space for them to come um, and reflect on that time. Because we have such a local emphasis here, people, one of the great things that happens is people come through to visit thinking about more of a grandiose Holocaust Museum kind of experience, um, and then they're encountering individuals who's, who they know or they know the families. So people are really able to make these personal connections with something that feels so distant and far away, both in time and space, and they come here and realize that these are individuals who are still um, living in our community, who have contributed in so many ways. So visitors have these memories of uh, encountering these individuals, maybe when they were in middle school. 20 years ago, they heard a Holocaust survivor speak, and then they enter the Holocaust History Center and hear that same Holocaust survivor giving testimony on our video screens. This is a great location because there's so much history here to have a history center. Um, and then there's new businesses as well, and we're really trying to um, build that community around Barrio Viejo, this treasure in Tucson. Someone else who sees the advantage of the History Center's location is Steve Holmes, the superintendent of the Sunnyside School District. I love that the History Museum is here in Barrio Viejo. 
Um, I think that it really serves to provide a remembrance of, you know, the changes here demographically, but equally important to get our kids in, in downtown area and, and have that opportunity to visit an area that, quite frankly, I think has been, had been abandoned for quite some time. And, and this kind of can provide a, a set educational center point. I think having children from our K-12 system visit this routinely, I think, is, is important and should be part of our curriculum. Director Brian Davis stresses the importance of partnerships with schools, churches, businesses, and arts groups in Tucson. Visitor Nina Tracehoff is on the board of the U of A School of Dance, who are participating with the History Center in a special benefit on Sunday. I talked with her about the almost surprising number of Holocaust survivors who now call Tucson their home. It makes sense that Tucson would have a population like this and welcome them. We are such an inclusive community. But I think what the survivors bring to Tucson is a remembrance of things past that we cannot be allowed to forget. And just by their simple presence and dignity, it prompts us to be more aware of what happened and what could happen. It primarily impacted the Jewish community. I mean, that, that were, they were the targets, but there were other targets and gays and gypsies. There were many, many others. But the lessons of the Holocaust are relevant to every human being, no matter your faith or lack of faith. Again, I spoke with Rabbi Kohan about the unique way that the History Center tells the story of the Holocaust. When you walk in, you walk in something that's very much like a cattle car door. And uh, Ben Lepley, the designer, did an incredible job of both evoking some of the powerful feelings um, as well as making the history lucid and explaining the whole experience of the Holocaust and then how genocide isn't just localized to that one experience. Look, the Holocaust was unique and it was the destruction of half the Jews in the world. But other genocides are horrific and tragic and we haven't really yet learned that lesson. Maybe this center can help teach us, not only in Arizona, but in the rest of the world, this important lesson. Another visitor who was moved by what he saw at the History Center was the Bishop of Tucson, Gerald Kikanis. It's a sacred space, a place where I hope some of our Catholic school children uh, in high school and grade school will be able to come and to learn about something that took place uh, that we regret deeply and that we hope will never happen again. It's something that is a tremendous lesson of importance uh, to the world today where we still experience uh, people marginalized, uh, people taken advantage of, human trafficking, uh, the whole refugee situation. So it's a place among us that helps us to remember where we have been and the hope that we will never be there again. I asked Brian Davis if he felt that in some way the Tucson Holocaust History Center was now a member of the Global Brotherhood of Holocaust Memorials. There are so many. There's dozens of Holocaust history centers around the country. Some people ask, why do we need one in southern Arizona? This is an educational center, and we can't imagine that students in Sunnyside School District or TUSD or Flowing Wells or what have you across, across the southern Arizona are going to visit the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., or the Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles. So this is for our community. Um, we are part of that greater landscape of Holocaust education um, organizations. And this is, this is a particular gift, I think, for our, for our community to have.
A dance, concert, and reception to benefit the Holocaust History Center is Sunday, April 17th at the Stevie Eller Dance Theater on the U of A campus. We have pictures highlighting the unique architecture and displays at the Holocaust History Center on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Around the country, April is designated as Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Promoting awareness, offering education, and providing support to sexual assault victims and their families is the year-round mission at SACASA, the Southern Arizona Center Against Sexual Assault. Joining me to discuss those goals are Myrna Garcia, the Senior Director of Forensic Services, Jackie Hynek, a crisis advocate, and Brandon Thane, a licensed therapist. Each work out of the SACASA main office in Tucson. Myrna Garcia stresses that every member of the SACASA team receives training across the center's departments and disciplines before beginning work in the field. I started by asking Myrna Garcia to share an experience that helped open her eyes to the reality of dealing with sexual assault in Arizona. One experience that comes to mind is when I was actually responding to the hospital. I was doing hospital response, and we received a call from Border Patrol. They had brought in a survivor to the hospital who had been assaulted, and they had found her on the side of the road between Tucson and Nogales. So they brought her into the hospital. This young lady was 18 years old, did not speak English, and she had found her way from El Salvador to Tucson. Um, First of all, she explained to me that throughout her journey, she'd been assaulted sexually by every leader, so to speak, that was guiding the journey. So on each stage of the journey, she She was assaulted, yes. And um, she started off by paying a certain amount of money. She ran out of money. Her family no longer had money to finance the journey. So that was how she had to pay for, for getting through. How did you first deal with the communication barrier? Did you just find a Spanish speaker to act as an intermediary? No, I'm bilingual. I'm glad I was the one that got the call because we didn't have to have her wait to find an interpreter. We have bilingual advocates as well. So it was it was good that I was the one to respond. I know that there's nothing like a standard case, but I do wonder, Jackie, if you can tell us when you're in an advocacy role, what's one of the very first things you want to offer that victim? You're absolutely right that there's no such thing as a standard case. However, there are things that should be standard with every case, and one of them is treating every survivor with dignity and respect. In the case that Myrna brought up, where you have someone who has had everything stripped from them, just being someone that recognizes them as a person, as a human being, and saying, I care for you, I believe you, no matter what happened to bring you to this place to this point, this time in your life, you didn't deserve this. That's something that we offer every single survivor. How would you characterize the relationship that you typically experience when you go into one of these situations working alongside law enforcement and first responders? It's certainly a collaborative relationship. We both play distinct roles, but our roles are very codependent in a way. We rely on law enforcement to do that uh, legal criminal follow-up. Um, And then our advocates are folks who talk to the survivor to find out, do they want evidence collected? Do they want to go forward with an investigation? So I think that in some ways we are able to provide a little relief there so that the officer knows 
know, maybe I'm not really familiar with a sexual assault case. There's an advocate here that knows um, what all the options are that will speak to them before I do so that they can let me know, are we going to investigate this case or not? Brandon, as a therapist, at what point do you usually become involved with a survivor? Once an advocate has identified a survivor, they will offer them to receive services at SACASA, and they will create a referral, and they can come in and begin to receive services as quickly as those get assigned, and they come in, and we do an, an intake process, gathering information, and then begin therapy services based on what we find in that assessment. So it could be very soon after the assault. Yes. As time progresses, can you share with us a couple of the benchmarks that you look for as a therapist in indicating that a survivor is healing and is moving on from an assault? Yeah. I mean, I think oftentimes um, I hear a lot of self-blaming. Um, I, I, I see they're very anxious. And when they begin to really have hope and feel like I'm worth moving forward and my goals and dreams aren't shattered, that I can, you know, I can still be the person I was meant to be despite that experience. And I think um, I'm constantly, you know, looking to give them that hope and, and be in that process of change for them. Last year, I got a chance to interview the Phoenix-based director Kirby Dick, who made a film called The Hunting Ground, which looked at the state of college campuses in relation to dealing with sexual assault. One of the things that The Hunting Ground did very well was expose some of the trends that are going on on college campuses that are creating a, an atmosphere where responsibility is lessened and there's a lot of victim blaming going on. I think that victim blaming is something that's pretty unique to the crime of sexual assault. You know, we think of other crimes and in what other crime when it's reported do we say, well, what did you do to cause your car to be broken into? What did you do to cause the side of your home to be um, vandalized with graffiti? But with sexual assault, a very common reaction when someone comes forward is, did you know them? Had you been on a date before? Maybe they just kind of were confused of what you wanted. So when we're looking at college campuses and how a lot of the focus is on the survivor instead of the perpetrator, we're saying a lot of, well, why don't these girls stop drinking? Why don't they stop going out to Greek Row? Instead of saying, well, what are we teaching the fraternity houses? What are we teaching to you know our student athletes? Um, about respecting one another. But when a survivor looks at her college campus and maybe the way his or her college campus and the way that their case was handled and they see they really didn't hold the perpetrator accountable, it's just, well, why would I come forward? You know, it happened to my friend. I better tell her not to because they might treat her in the same way. Something that Brandon mentioned that's reported often in the media is the discrepancy between the number of crimes that are committed and the number that are being reported. But do you think that that number is changing? Is there any evidence that more sexual assaults are being reported now than, say, 10 years ago? I would think so. Um, I would think that there, the awareness is greater. The um, support is greater. Um, the People feel safer now. I think, I mean, just from personal experience, I've seen our numbers just at Sakasa grow. I mean, we've had a lot more um, support being provided as of late. 
In addition to concerts and regular take-back-the-night gatherings and speak-outs, the Southern Arizona Center Against Sexual Assault is holding a benefit called Dine Out for Safety on Wednesday, April 20th. Participating restaurants will pledge a percentage of their receipts that day to support Sakasa's mission. Sakasa is located at 1600 North Country Club. They maintain a 24-hour bilingual crisis line, and there's a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Stay tuned for more Arizona Spotlight right after this break. Welcome back to the show. Since 2004, the Hansen Film Institute has presented the United States' longest-running and most prominent showcase of Mexican films, the Cine Mexico Film Festival. This year, the festival features the first film from director Celso Garcia, La Delgada Línea Amarilla, or The Thin Yellow Line. The film has just been recognized with 14 nominations in the upcoming Ariel Awards, which are presented by the Mexican Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. Garcia will visit Tucson next week to screen the film for an audience and receive the Cine Mexico Jaguar Award for feature directorial debut. Here is film writer Chris DeShiel with a review. For most of us, work takes up the majority of our lives, 40 hours a week or more. And yet, it is rare for a film to focus on this pervasive reality. The general opinion is that there's not enough drama or excitement there, which is what we usually look for in an entertainment. No doubt, there's also a desire to avoid the painful aspects of work. For his debut feature called The Thin Yellow Line, writer-director Celso R. Garcia has bravely tackled this neglected topic. His story is about some of the most humble and least noticed workers you can imagine, the guys that paint the yellow dotted lines down the center of the highway. And along this journey, the film celebrates the people who persevere through poverty and struggle in Mexico. The thin yellow line opens with a melancholy older man named Tonio getting laid off from his job as a watchman at a junkyard. To misfortune is added the indignity of being replaced by a dog. Tonio then has to travel around in his Chevy truck looking for work. The economy is bad everywhere. 
Finally, he manages to get a job pumping gas, but the boss has a habit of being late with the paycheck. At night, sad and reflective, Tonio looks through a little box of photos and clippings. We find that at one time he had a wife and son, but what happened, we don't know. He gets a break when an engineer from a former construction job stops for gas and recognizes him. Eventually, the man offers him a job to paint the yellow lines on a long country highway for 210 kilometers, about 130 miles, and to finish in 15 days before the rainy season starts. The engineer gathers a motley crew for Tonya to supervise, an out-of-work truck driver, a former circus handyman, an ex-con, and a sullen teenager. They are walking through the desert of San Luis Potosi in east-central Mexico, most of the time in the full sun, performing a dull and repetitive task that wears down their minds as the heat wears down their bodies. And although two of them wave warning flags at each end of the procession, the few passing vehicles often go by at top speed, posing considerable danger. Naturally, the five men get to know each other well, and there are conflicts. At times, there are breaks in the work. For instance, when they go to town for supplies and end up at a little carnival, or when they ask for shelter to Hacienda during a rainstorm. In these scenes, we learn the backstory of each character. These are ordinary, decent men with wounds from the past that have brought them to this point in their lives. The film creates a special dramatic tension between Tonio and the rebellious teen Pablo, the older man's strict demeanor towards the boy reflecting a secret grief. As a rookie filmmaker, Garcia sometimes falls into predictability in his situations and a psychology that can seem a little too pat. But his skill at evoking the lives of poor people, their humor and self-respect, along with an excellent visual sense for this desolate yet beautiful landscape, makes up for any flaws. The Thin Yellow Line is an authentic and down-to-earth portrait of working people. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShiel. The Tucson Cine Mexico Film Festival presents The Thin Yellow Line on Saturday, April 23rd at the Harkins Spectrum 18. Tickets are free, but online registration is required. We have a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. There are only about 250 public Japanese gardens in North America. Tucson is home to one of the most recent. This transformative space provides an Asian oasis in the middle of the city on Alvernon near Grant, and it represents a dream come true for the woman behind the plans and the plants. Yume Japanese Gardens of Tucson opened its doors in 2013, but it's been years in the making, part of a decades-long transcontinental journey for its founder and director. My name is Patricia DeRider, and I am actually managing a Japanese garden. Patricia DeRider is originally from Europe, but while she was still a teenager, she began a new and exotic chapter in her life. She convinced her parents to allow her to move to Japan, alone to a foreign country thousands of miles away from her family's home. I was uh, born in Belgium 
and uh, I lived there for about 18 years, but I knew from early on that I wanted to discover Japan. And I went there to study Japanese and stayed 15 years. From Japan, it was on to the United States. She moved to Wisconsin with her American husband where they raised two children. When the kids became adults, the writer decided to add a different destination to her adventures. After the cold Midwestern winters, sunny Tucson seemed especially attractive. When I moved, I had to recreate myself, basically, because I didn't have the jobs that I had up north. And my parents passed away and um, left me an estate, which I sold. And eventually, I decided I was going to do what I always wanted to do my whole life, is to create a Japanese garden and a museum. She was able to purchase a property for the gardens, and her long-term plan was under construction. And uh, it took me about a year, a year and a half, to build it because it was just, there was nothing here. And we opened in 2013. That's the sound of the shakuhachi, a Japanese flute being played by Tucson resident and ethnomusicologist Paul Amiel. My wife and I lived in Japan in Nagoya for a year and we loved the gardens and visited a lot. So to have something like this on Alvernon uh, was stunning. Emil has become a big fan of the gardens. He says the surroundings complement and enhance the musical experience. With the shakuhachi, the Japanese flute, it really fits this setting. And to play here is very different than playing in my living room or playing anywhere else. And so the fact that this is here uh, is, helps the meditation of the instrument and helps my understanding of what it means. Deryder says she wants to provide a place for peace, meditation, and education. The facility includes a typical Japanese country home, a small museum, and a pond with brightly colored koi fish. In Japan, she says, most gardens do not have ponds unless they are located on sprawling properties such as temples or palaces. But it's such a part of a Japanese garden, at least in the image of everybody in the Western world, that uh, we have that pond and the pond is composed of different uh, elements. You have to have a pebble beach, you have to have koi, of course, uh, you usually have an island uh, and a small waterfall, uh, not very big, usually it's more like a stream coming into the pond. The way the Japanese gardens are made, they're the very human scale and they, they make you more peaceful if you take the time to stop and smell the rose. <laughs> For now, Deryder doesn't have much time to rest herself. The gardens have become a full-time job that require her constant attention and commitment. <laughs> yes, you can say that. It is a lot of work, but it's worth it, I hope, as long as people come. <laughs> Actually, the name of the garden is Dream, 
in Japanese, Yume mainstream. And I always had hope to share what I had learned. And I had a, a mentor when I was in Japan who said, at a certain age, you have to return what you have received. And it's my way of returning. It's an ongoing narrative that spans three continents and different decades. A woman from Belgium who moved to Japan and now owns a Japanese garden in the Sonoran Desert of Arizona. It may sound unusual, but... Well, that's the story of my life. That's a summary of the life that I've had. It's, it's really the, yeah, the summary of what I've lived for. I, I don't know how else to explain it. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. You can see video of the Japanese garden on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The garden is open through May 31st before they close for the summer. In the meantime, they offer programs like a Stroll for Wellbeing group and a Children's Day Festival happening on Saturday, May 7th. You can find information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.